again for your word. We thank you for these opportunities we have to study it. Lord, we know there are places on the planet where people are oppressed and where believers huddle together secretly uh, to worship you and study your word. Lord, we're so thankful that we have the freedoms that we do uh, to come openly and publicly and declare our faith. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us this morning, that you would speak to us, uh, Lord, that we could be not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word as well. We love you and want our lives to be pleasing to you, and so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago, Worcester, Massachusetts, the police there found a 76-year-old woman dead on the kitchen floor. As sad as this was, it's not that peculiar. Tragedies happen. But what was unusual about this case is that the woman had been dead for four years. How could she have been dead for so long and no one know? Well, the woman's brother said that the family was never close. The neighbors had the impression that she preferred to be left alone. In the end, it was a sorrowful tale of people living in close proximity, but not in community. Paul opens chapter 5, telling us that this should never happen in the church. Recall his theme. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, we read, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. And here in chapter 5, Paul tells us that one of the ways the church should conduct itself is like a family. Verse 1 says, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger as sisters, with all purity. You know, one of the great tragedies of our modern transient society is the breakdown of the extended family. There was a day when folks had a support system of friends and family members that they could lean on during tough times. During transition or trouble, there was someone they could depend on. When the baby was born, grandma was there to help. If financial hardships took place, brothers and uncles could pitch in. People had a social safety net. Today, folks bounce from city to city and leave behind scattered relatives. People today are home alone. On a daily practical basis, there's a lack of community. And this is why I believe Paul's words in these two verses are more important today than ever before. The church is supposed to act like an extended family. Older men should be respected, treated as fathers. They bring great wisdom to the table. And before you rebuke one, realize that it won't be long before you are one. Treat younger men as brothers. You're a little freer to joke around with a brother or get in his face if need be. He's a peer. Every man needs brothers in his life. Older ladies should be treated as moms. They should be loved on and appreciated. The older ladies of the fellowship have your best interests at heart. And a young pastor, Timothy should treat the younger women as sisters with all purity. In other words, don't let it get sexual or flirtatious. Keep the relationships with the opposite sex familial. 
young women aren't foxes or babes or chicks. They're sisters. As with our children, when they got married, my wife knew that we would have to share them with the in-laws on holidays. Their attendance at the Adams gathering on Thanksgiving and Christmas would be hit or miss. But Kathy was smart. She picked another day that belongs to us. It's an Adams tradition. On New Year's Day, everybody comes to our house. The men watch football on television and the women cook up delicious desserts. And it's a great day. We laugh and scream and cheer and play and eat and eat and eat. You get it. It's our day. It's a day when we're all together. And this is what church on Sunday should be, our day. We need to read our Bibles and pray and worship every day. But on Sundays, we do it together. It's our day. It reinforces family. Sunday is our weekly family reunion. And it should be vital that we all make it a priority. And speaking of God's family, there were certain members of that family that needed special care. Paul writes, verse 3, Honor widows who are really widows. Once there were two women, they were sharing a semi-private hospital room. One was the wife of an Episcopal priest. The other was a widow. These two ladies had never met. That evening, right after their surgeries, the Episcopal priest stopped in to visit his wife. He came from the church, so he was still wearing his clerical collar. Well, they talked for a long time, had a very pleasant conversation. Finally, the priest walks over. He wraps his arms around his wife, says goodbye with a long, passionate hug and kiss. Well, the other woman, she had just woken up from her anesthesia. She looks over, and she sees this. And suddenly, she says to her roommate, Wow, I've been a member of my church for 50 years, and I've never gotten that kind of treatment. There were also a few women, some widows, in Timothy's church who felt that they had been slighted. You know, in Bible times, men made up 99.9% of the workforce. There were few opportunities for a widow to gain employment and support her family. Thus, when a family lost its breadwinner, the church had to step in. Today, the church is called on to step in in charitable situations, not only for widows, but in many different circumstances. Modern society is so terribly fractured that it's easy for people to fall through the cracks. The poor and the widows and the orphans are now joined by the homeless and the uninsured and the single moms and the latchkey kids. For a church to function as a family, it has to be strategic. Just start meeting community needs with no direction, and you'll exhaust your members and bankrupt the church. You need a plan of attack. Churches need a benevolent strategy so that they honor widows who are really widows. Here's the question that all churches have to ask. How far do we go to supply financial help to needy people? It didn't take Timothy long to discover the two truths that all churches face when it comes to benevolence. First, we face unlimited needs. But second, we have limited resources. 
And when you try to meet unlimited needs with limited resources, discretion becomes a necessity. And in the next 14 verses, Paul is going to give to Timothy and all pastors, all churches, principles for allocating aid to the widows. And these instructions, I believe, contain seven principles that apply to every church's benevolence ministry. Now again, Paul says in verse 3, honor widows who are really widows. You'd think that a real widow would be easy to identify. But in Paul's mind, a true widow, one who is a candidate for the church's benevolence, involved more than just a woman who lost her husband. A real widow had to meet certain qualifications. And in the same way, a truly poor person is more than just a person who doesn't have savings. Maybe he gambled away his paycheck. Maybe she just refuses to work. To assess the legitimacy of the need, investigation is required. I'll never forget the fellow who came to Calvary Chapel one Wednesday night. He had this sad sob story. He pulled on everybody's heartstrings. Some of the men of the church decided to help him out. Well, the next day I was listening to the radio and I heard Clark Howard warn of a con man who was fleecing churches here in East Atlanta. Our guy fit Clark's description. I realized we'd been snookered. Another time we had a man walk into the church on a Saturday afternoon. Some folks were cleaning and he asked if he could use the telephone. He said that he had car problems. Nobody noticed that he talked for over an hour. When we got our phone bill that month, we discovered that he had called India. Apparently, his mechanic was in Bombay. Imagine a tow charge from Georgia to India. It astonishes me that there are people brazen enough to con a church. But it happens. Not everyone who says or seems to be in need is indeed a needy person that we should help. We should always want to help, but first, investigation is needed. Now, there's seven principles in this text. The first principle for church benevolence is never contribute to someone else's irresponsibility. For Paul tells us, if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. If a church helped a lady who had an able family member at home, the church's charity would have been undermining that family member's responsibility. Let the kids, let the grandkids care for mom. The church shouldn't enable somebody else's irresponsibility. Here's a second benevolence principle. The church should take care of its own. Verse 5. Now she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives, and these things command that they may be blameless. A church's priority should be to support people who are seeking the hand of God before they attempt to meet the needs of those just seeking a handout. Help a person who's dead to God and worships the idol of pleasure, and you may just fuel their idolatry. I once saw a family, they were rummaging through the goodwill drop-off, getting clothes. 
I felt sorry for this family until I watched them load up, then roll their truck across the parking lot and walk into the liquor store. See, the church should avoid, avoid aiding a person who's dead to God when there are folks trying to serve the Lord who need our help. Look at verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. This obviously applies to individuals. As a husband and a father, I'm worse than a pagan, an unbeliever, if I don't work hard to provide for the needs of my family. But this also applies to churches. We need to be concerned for the lost world around us, no doubt, but especially of those who are of our own household. Our first obligation as a church is to care for our own, and then we reach out. Well, there's a third benevolence principle. Don't interfere with the character transformation that God wants to accomplish in another person's life. Paul says in verse 9, Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man, well reported for good works, if she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, or literally been hospitable, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. Now, it could be that these true widows constituted an order, a sisterhood of widows in the early church. Ladies with a lifetime history of good works and joyful service were supported by the church so that they could devote themselves full-time to practical ministry. But this ministry was offered only to mature believers. Paul says widows over 60 years old with a settled character, who showed a pattern of good works. Apparently, the younger widows still had much to learn from life's struggles. To support the younger ladies, it would have short-circuited the lessons that they would learn from having to lean upon the Lord to meet their needs. Here's the application for us today. When you offer benevolence, make sure that you're not interfering with a life lesson that God is trying to teach the person who's involved. Notice the fourth principle. Give God an opportunity to work through other means. Verse 11. But refuse the younger widows, for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. If a younger lady enters this order of widows and takes a vow to serve the Lord full time, what happens later? when she feels the urge to get married again. Suddenly, she's forced to choose between serving Jesus and following the natural and healthy desire of being a wife. A younger gal should be free to remarry. You know, when people come to church for help, they're usually desperate. And without realizing it, we can create in them an unhealthy dependence on us. Rather than the church throwing money at every situation, sometimes it's best for us to sit tight and be patient and wait on God to work it out some other way. I remember a single lady in our church who told me the sad story of loaning her friend $400. The friend never paid her back. Now she didn't have the money to return home for the holidays. I, I, I was, felt so sorry for her that I thought 
I would just reach into my pocket and pull out the money. I just wanted to give her the $400. But the Lord checked my heart. Instead, we prayed together and we trusted God to provide. And I'll never forget that next week she called me and she said she had received an unexpected check for $400 in the mail. God had miraculously provided her need. And seeing God work a miracle did far more for her faith than if the church had just cut her a check. Well, the fifth principle is make sure your help is not a further temptation. Verse 13. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies saying things which they ought not. Rather than fill her hours with meaningful service, a younger lady who lacks the spiritual maturity of a true widow might just end up with idle time on her hands. By us taking care of her physical needs, rather than her serving the Lord with her time and effort, we might turn her into a soap opera addict, or a gossip, or a spoiled person. Our benevolence might just play right into the devil's hands. See, this is why our church rarely gives out cash. We might write a check to your power company or to your landlord or hand you some grocery coupons, but not cash. We don't give out cash. We don't want to add to a person's temptation. Some people can't handle $500 in cash. It never gets to their landlord. It ends up fueling some addiction, which brings up a sixth principle Look for long-term solutions to situations. Verse 14. Therefore, I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully, for some have already turned aside after Satan. So we help a younger widow for the moment. Are we able to support her forever? Probably not. The longer-term solution is for her to start a career or to remarry a godly man. Not the first guy that comes along, but she at least needs to be willing to trust God for the grace to start over, to start afresh. Unlike the older widows, the younger widows still have a lot of living to do. They need to be open to the possibility of new beginnings, even second families. You know, there's an old saying that applies to a church's charity. Catch a man a fish, and you feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish, and you feed him for a lifetime. At times, compassion requires a church to act immediately, but the best benevolence is long-term. And then the last principle, encourage church members to take care of each other. Verse 16, if any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them. And do not let the church be burdened, that it may relieve those who are really widows. Remember, every church faces two immutable facts. We face unlimited needs, and we possess limited resources. Thus, if the individual believers within the church can meet their own needs or meet each other's needs, then it frees up church resources to minister in other ways. You remember James chapter 1, verse 27, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. You know, our highest calling is to care 
for the lowliest among us. Families, good families, don't let members slip through the cracks. Love is every Christian's business. So one more time, let me review these seven principles that should govern church benevolence. Never contribute to someone else's irresponsibility. The church should take care of its own. Don't interfere with the character transformation God wants to accomplish in another person's life. Give God an opportunity to work by other means. Make sure your help is not a further temptation. Look for long-term solutions to situations and encourage church members to care for each other. Now, Paul has been encouraging Timothy to shepherd the flock of God. No lamb should be left behind. But now verse 17 shifts gears. Somebody needs to look out for the shepherd. Too many pastors shoulder the bulk of the ministry while their own needs get overlooked. And Paul tells the church that Timothy pastors, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Paul says that if your church has a good pastor who feeds you God's word, then you should take out your calculator, plug in his salary, then times two, just double up the guy's pay. I wish that's what the verse meant, but, <laughs> but it's not. Actually, I like the true meaning of this verse even better. Double honor speaks of payment in two forms, with a salary and with your respect. And trust me, there are days when your respect is far more valuable to me than just the salary. Don't just assume your pastor knows you appreciate him. Trust me, he tends to forget. Remind him often. Sadly, over the last 60 years, our society has developed a deep cynicism toward people in authority. It's not just pastors. It's police officers and politicians and parents. And with each new scandal, suspicion only deepens. But if you have a pastor who labors in the word and doctrine, who works hard in the kitchen of preparation every week to turn out balanced, nutritious sermons that keep you spiritually healthy, then support him. Verse 18 says, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Here, Paul compares the pastor with an ox. I'll take that. Paul quotes Deuteronomy 25 verse 4. Even an ox is allowed to eat the grain as he threshes it. And likewise, a pastor should be allowed to eat from the financial fruits of his ministry. Don't muzzle your pastor. Pay him well. Of course, some churches take the attitude, Lord, you keep him humble and we'll keep him poor. But if that's your attitude, it puts you at odds with Jesus. Notice the last line in verse 18. It's in red letters, by the way. It's Jesus' words in Matthew 10, verse 10, the laborer is worthy of his wages. Well, Moses says pay the pastor. Jesus says pay the pastor. Paul says pay the pastor. And thus, if you pay the pastor, you're in pretty good company, I'd say. And let me just say thank you. Because I pastor a church who believes these verses. You do pay your pastor, and you pay him uh, very well. And I'm so grateful for your support, both tangibly and your prayer support. I appreciate them both. Thank you. Verse 19. 
Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Church leaders are often the subject of vicious gossip. The pastor is God's spokesperson, and thus he becomes a target sometimes for people who are wanting to cast blame. People find it easier sometimes to blame the pastor or even blame God himself than to admit that their problems are their own. A pastor becomes a convenient scapegoat. Pastors realize this dynamic, but members of the church should also understand what's going on here and refuse to believe every negativity that they hear about their pastor. Certainly, you hope folks that have been around a while and have observed your track record will believe the best in you and question the accusation and at least give you the benefit of the doubt until you've been proven guilty. This is why Paul says that any charge against a pastor or elder should be carefully substantiated by two or three witnesses. Never entertain hearsay against a pastor. Realize what hurts pastors most are not the attacks of the enemy, but the friendly fire they get from their own camp. And yet when an accusation is confirmed and a pastor is strayed or sinned, then it shouldn't be swept under the rug. A pastor or an elder shouldn't be granted immunity. If a pastor is guilty, then he should be called into account. He's not above correction or discipline. James 3 verse 1 cautions, Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Paul says it this way in verse 20, Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. And when a leader gets disciplined, it becomes a powerful example, a great deterrent to the whole church. Now, Paul challenges Timothy in verse 21. He says, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels. And when I read that, I think, wow, every pastor needs to recall who's watching. God and Jesus and the angels. That you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. A pastor should be without prejudice. He shouldn't play favorites, but he should be fair in his approach to people. He says, do not lay hands on anyone hastily. All church leaders should be proven before they're promoted. Nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. This is so strategic. All leaders are called to roll up their shirt sleeves and get dirty. Often church work gets messy. You end up dealing with other people's problems. But don't get drugged down by the folks you're trying to help. You know, some days I come home and I wonder, is there anybody living a godly life? The answer, of course, is yes. But even if it were no, I need to be. Don't let another brother's failure become your excuse to sin. And then he says, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Now this was before the days of Pepsi and Rolaids. There were no Tums for Tim. And the old boy had a queasy stomach. He probably had some kind of digestive tract disorder. And so Paul prescribes for him a little wine for medicinal purposes. And notice this, the fact that Paul had to tell him to drink a glass of wine is obviously evidence that it was off limits to elders. 
Paul had to let him know that his case was an exception. And then he says, some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment. But those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. What an important lesson for leaders. Some sins are obvious. The burn is immediately immediate and apparent. Other sins have time-released consequences. You don't feel the sting until years later or months later. And you know, the same is true with good works too. You reap what you sow, but not always immediately. Often there's a wait. Well, chapter 6 begins. Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God in His doctrine may not be blasphemed. Historians say that there were as many as 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Perhaps half the population were slaves. Many of the early Christians were slaves. And Paul tells them to respect their masters, that the name of God in his doctrine not be blasphemed. It's a provocative thought that Paul in the early church never denounced the institution of slavery in society. Clearly, they didn't think one human should own another human. In fact, Paul did abolish slavery in the church. In Galatians 3 verse 28, he states, There is neither slave nor free, for we are all one in Christ. In the church, slaves and slave owners were placed on equal footing. But in society at large, Paul never mounted a direct campaign to wipe out slavery. In his mind, slavery wasn't the real issue. If he had eliminated the system, there still would have been the attitude. There would still be wicked men trying to control the lives of other men. That goes on today. There's still men who try to enslave others in all kinds of nefarious ways. See, Paul was far more ambitious than just wiping out the institution of slavery. He wanted to wipe out the pride and the selfishness and the greed in humans that produced the desire to enslave. Paul preached Christ, knowing that in hearts where Christ would be received, slavery would soon become a thing of the past. Love would overcome bondage. And then he speaks to believing slaves, verse 2. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. The slave of a believing master shouldn't get resentful. At least he's serving a fellow Christian. Behind this was the belief that love conquers all. The love of the owner for the slave could cause the slave to serve happily, and the love of the slave for his owner could prompt the owner to set him free. Paul encourages Timothy, teach and exhort these things. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain, from such withdraw yourself. 
Timothy needs to stick with the gospel. The power of God to salvation. The patience of faith. Not wranglings and silly speculations that contradicted sound doctrine. Those that majored in the wranglings, Timothy should withdraw fellowship from these, especially those who mix godliness with greed, which is still a problem today. Some preachers teach a prosperity gospel today, the idea that God wants us all to be rich. Thus, following Jesus is a way to cash in. God becomes an ATM to some guys. Plug in your prayer, your positive confession, or your seed faith, and out comes the money. Paul tells Timothy to withdraw from these teachers. And Paul refutes the doctrine they teach in verse 6. He says, now godliness with contentment is great gain. Money has little to do with true success. Real faith consists of a godliness with contentment. It learns that Jesus is all that we need. It's been said, nothing fails so completely as success without God. As you climb the ladder of success, be sure it's not leaning against the wrong wall. And then verse 7, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. You know, it's been said there are two great tragedies in life. Not getting what you want and getting what you want. Once you bite that apple, you realize that it really doesn't satisfy. Jesus told the woman at the well, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. And the same can be said for everything this world offers. You'll thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. According to Paul, food, clothing, and Jesus is more than enough. It's been said the key to contentment is not getting more, but wanting less. Less from this world, more from Jesus. And then he says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Once a New Orleans gambling boat started to sink, passengers dove from the deck and swam to the shore. One man, though, dove into the water. He never resurfaced. It was later discovered that before jumping, this greedy guy had run back into the casino and he'd filled all his pockets with gold coins. He was drowned by a love for money. Be careful. The desire for riches pulls you in to all kinds of temptations, many foolish and harmful lusts. Verse 10, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Notice, money isn't the root of all evil. Money can be used as a tool. It can be used for good and for godly things. It's the love of money. That's the root of all evil that lures a person into temptation. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Boy, the best way to resist temptation is to pursue the good stuff, faith and love and patience and meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. 
lay hold on eternal life, to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Verse 13, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. I think this is very interesting. Notice Paul mentions the Lord of the universe, our Lord Jesus, in the same sentence with a two-bit Roman governor who barely garners a footnote in secular, secular history. And why? Well, Paul wants us to know that he believes in the Jesus of history, that his Savior is not a legend. He's not the figment of someone's imagination. The Lord of eternity occupied a spot on history's timeline. God came to earth. He took a human body. He invaded the human struggle. He even confessed in a human court before Pilate. Verse 14, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. Now remember Paul's pattern. He charges Timothy and then he praises God. And here again is his praise. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. What an irony. The King of kings was tried before a small fry governor. Today, though, Jesus sits on God's throne in heaven. His holiness radiates unapproachable light. If we were to enter heaven in these mortal bodies, they'd burn to a crisp, just like that. This is why one day we'll get a new body fit for glory. And then verse 17, command those who are rich in this present age, not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. And understand, all riches are uncertain riches. Material wealth can be here today and gone tomorrow. Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Money can be eaten by inflation, devalued by legislation, stolen by taxation. Don't build a life on money. It's uncertain riches. Rather, trust in God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. I love that. Robbie Zacharias, he defines a legitimate pleasure. It's something that refreshes along the journey without distracting from the ultimate goal. I love that. And, and you know, I'm so thankful that God has filled up our lives in so many ways with these kinds of helpful pleasures. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. Again, money itself isn't evil. Here Paul encourages those who have it to use it for the welfare of others and the glory of God. Verse 19, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Hey, giving to God in this life accrues for you rewards in the life to come. It's been said you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Be a giver. And then verse 20, O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. 
Still today, the truth of God is under attack. We need to guard and preserve and teach the truth to the next generation. Avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Steer clear of babbling speculation. It'll sidetrack your faith. Keep your doctrine both pure and biblical. And then Paul signs off. Grace be with you. Amen. And there we have...